It's funny when um, a couple decades go by, uh, what happens to a congregation. So some of you I recognize, even though we've all aged a little bit. And then some of you I, you know, just have never met before. And I'm just delighted to be here. It's a great congregation. Um, kind of feels like coming back to family. So, um, yeah, it's great. So this week um, is the story of Ruth. And it's funny to be assigned a topic. It's actually also... a a good thing because sometimes you can spin your wheels trying to figure out what you want to talk about. But this time we're going to talk about Ruth and not only is it a signed topic, but it's a topic I love. I love this story. Um, it's not a story about the rich and the famous and about generals and kings and war. It's just a homey story about common people's lives. It's about human kindness. It's about how God meets people in the middle of their need. So the background. You have this couple, Naomi and her man, Elimelech, who are residents of Bethlehem, but they're hungry. They are, ironically enough, starving in a city whose name means house of bread. So they're in the house of bread and they're hungry. Weird. Deepening the irony, they, their food insecurity drives them to Moab. And Moab is a place that in the time of Moses, the Israelites had visited and they were not given food. And they became enemies of Israel because the Moabites refused to give them food. Very strange. So these two famine refugees settle in Moab in their new country, and they have two boys. Sadly, then Elimelech dies. You know all this probably. Leaving Naomi a single mom. And she's not only a single mom, but she's an immigrant. Someone who is in a different people group. She's surrounded by people in a different religion. But she holds on, and she raises her sons, and they come to maturity, and they marry local women. This is a very realistic scenario. This is how humans function. But the story really begins when Naomi is older. She's an older, widowed, immigrant woman, and she's bereft of her only two children. So let's pause here just for a second to think about the crushing reality of the life of Naomi. She's far from the country of her birth, her husband is gone, and now not one but two of her sons have died. And she feels completely destitute. And so it's really no wonder that she says what she does. She says, the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought such calamity upon me? So I don't think we have to take her words at face value. I don't think God planned all this misery and brought it into her life. But I think this despair that she's feeling is what human life often feels like, right? She gets to that point where it feels like God has abandoned her. And God has turned away. And God has brought all these hard things into her life. And I feel like, at one level, this despair is not really befitting of a biblical character, like Naomi, who's a faithful person. Why is she talking like this? Though we also know Job, and Jeremiah, and David, and other psalmists, and even Jesus, to a certain extent, express their despair to God. Apparently, God accepts her agonized cry. Her rant against God, 
against her life, against her loss, and God doesn't punish her or reprimand her for being such a grumbler. Instead, God answers her need, and by the end of the story, we know she's going to move from emptiness to fullness. So maybe when we're grieving and there are times we need to be strong, that's fine. But many places in Scripture show us that when we're grieving, it's okay to be in despair when we're bringing that despair to God. God is big enough, strong enough, gracious enough to hear the prayers of our darkest moments. Wouldn't it be great if we couldn't relate to this story? Wouldn't it be great if we never, ever lost hope, if we never got to the place of despair? If this story didn't resonate with us, but it does because life is sometimes difficult and hope is sometimes hard to come by. I was reading a book by an author, Rebecca Solnit, and she talks about despair being a product of amnesia. And I found that really intriguing. First of all, she says, we get amnesia about how far we've come. And we feel like we've always been in this horrible, horrible place. We forgot the progress that we've made as a person or a family or a church or a community. But the second kind of amnesia, she says, that comes from despair is an amnesia that makes us forget how history always moves. History shows us that we will not live in this darkest moment forever. In our darkest times, it can feel like this is it. This is my life from now on. I will be this broke this depressed, this broken, this abandoned, forever. But it's just not true. In our dark times, we might think, and this is personal confession, I have thought that this country will never recover from the incredible animosity and dividedness and chaos that we find ourselves in. We will always be this fractured, this broken, this lost. Despair says things are always horrible and always will be, but it's just not true. But this is where Naomi is at when we see her at her lowest point. Hope, on the other hand, says that things will, you know, they might be horrible now, but they will change. The present moment is not the last word. And maybe some of you saw that news story of this young woman, and we see this, this young woman in England started putting notes on a bridge in London where lots of people jump off and kill themselves. And one of the notes said something like that. Remember, this dark moment is not the last moment. It's not the last word. This is not the end. Hope says things might be horrible now, but the present moment is not the last word. God's fullness is the last word. So... How do we break out of our despair-induced amnesia? Sometimes I think we simply need to read God's word and pray and worship. Sometimes we need someone close to us like Ruth who can say, don't lose hope. You've come a long way already, and the present hardship is not the last movement in this drama. So as you know, Naomi decides to leave and go back to her homeland. She thinks maybe that will help somehow, or maybe it's just better to die among your own people. But she doesn't want to drag anybody else down, so she tells her daughters-in-law, just stay here, go back to your mother's house, I'm going to go and weep and mourn and maybe starve on my own. 
But one of the beautiful things in this story, and we have all these jokes about mother-in-laws, how they're bossy and nosy and they can't keep their, you know, their face out of your business and all that kind of stuff. But in this story, her daughters-in-law love her so much that they're weeping out loud when she says, go home. Go back to your mother's. And they're like, no, we don't want to. We want to be with you. It's beautiful. The second time, though, when she cajoles them to go home, one of them, Orpah, apparently reluctantly turns back and goes to her own people. But Ruth can't imagine letting Naomi go this road alone because her age and without a male, um, without male connections, she's probably not going to have a good life. She may even starve. Ruth, in a stunning display of self-sacrifice, pledges to care for Naomi for the rest of her life. It's bizarre. Whatever aspirations she had for her life, whatever she thought it was going to be, get married, have children, watch them grow up, watch their kids have kids, watch her grandchildren grow up, whatever, she promises it all away. I'm just going to go with you. She promises to stick with Naomi through thick and thin to make sure that Naomi doesn't fall through the cracks the way older people sometimes do, particularly in societies without safety nets, but even in ours, and especially older women. Her pledge encompasses her entire future, which is obviously why so many people choose these words to use in their wedding. But I have to say, I am mystified about why in weddings Women always, the the bride always says this to the groom, when in this story, the words are spoken to a woman. But anyway, the point is, Ruth is a shining example of what it means to love your neighbor, right? She's loving her neighbor as herself. If it were me, would I want to go back alone and hungry? No. After decades of living somewhere else, and she might be rejected by her family because she did, in fact, settle in Moab, and her sons did, in fact, marry Moabite women, and that's kind of frowned on, interracial marriage in those days in Israel. Ruth loves her neighbor as herself, but it's not the kind of sacrifice where she loses herself and becomes a doormat. It's that she's a true friend. She chooses a course of action that will increase the quality of Naomi's life. It'll make Naomi's life sweeter because that's what friends do, because that's what love is about, is helping the flourishing of the person you love. It reminds me of a line from a Frederick Beekner essay, and he's a, I believe, Lutheran pastor who's written a number of devotional books. And he was musing about that story of Moses who ends up killing an Egyptian when he's trying to break up a fight. And Beekner says, so what does that story have to do with me? Most of us have never been tempted to kill another person. And he said, then I got convicted that every time I fail to love somebody, I have diminished their life. I haven't killed them, but I've diminished their life by my failure to love, or my failure to love as much as I could in our failure to love or to love enough, that person's life is that much less worth living. We diminish each other's lives to the degree that we fail to love. But Ruth, in in contrast, was on deck to help Naomi flourish. In any case, in another irony of the book, Ruth adopts the faith of Naomi just when Naomi thinks that God has abandoned her. Have you ever thought about that? 
Ruth is kind of like Rahab, a woman from outside Israel who decides to attach herself to the people of Israel and attach herself to Yahweh, Israel's God. But Rahab has the army of Israel doing all these crazy things and winning all these battles, and they live in that era of tribal gods where if your army wins, you think that the god of that army must be really powerful, and so you're going to adopt that god. What does Ruth have when she decides to adopt Yahweh as her god? She has Naomi saying things like, My God has forgotten me and turned his back on me and dished all these hard things into my life, and I'm a mess. And Ruth says, okay, well, I want that God. It's a beautiful moment. It's funny, in a way. She pledges to give herself to the God of Naomi after Naomi gives the most anti-evangelistic sermon ever. (laughs) I am the opposite of blessed. I am empty. God doesn't listen to me anymore. And Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. It's funny. It's funny that Ruth embraces the very God whom Naomi is bemoaning. The God who didn't care for her as she thought God should or could. But I think it might say something about how Naomi lived her life. Maybe how Naomi and Elimelech And their sons lived faithfully before God, even in a foreign place. Maybe Ruth has had decades of watching these faithful people faithfully serve their God. She's known the sweetness of fellowship with God because of this family. All I know is it's hard to be perfect. And it's hard to be a perfect follower of God, particularly in our families. Maybe you've noticed that too. Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. It's hard to be a perfect follower of Christ every minute of every day. It's hard to have the answers to every question that someone might put to you. But if our overall orientation is to the God who loves us, our lives will speak. So Ruth chooses Yahweh during Naomi's darkest time because she's seen the other times. So they go to Israel, and now the roles are reversed. Ruth is the foreigner. Ruth is the immigrant from an enemy people, in fact. And she's the one who has to go out into society and get them food. Naomi observes, and later Boaz does too, that this is a dangerous thing for Ruth to do. She's a young foreign woman alone in a field. She has nobody watching out for her safety. Nobody will care if something bad happens to her. Sexual assault was not invented in our generation. We're talking about it with Me Too, but it's as old as sin. In fact, there are a number of sexual assault stories in the Old Testament, which I find really interesting because most people try to cover this stuff up. And if I were making up a religion, I would no way include these stories in the Bible. I kind of think it shows something about God's involvement in the writing of Scripture, the good and the bad. Don't get too full of yourself because look at some of your, the sins that, that uh, people are going to know about forever. But these stories of sexual assault are never taken lightly in the text. They're never condoned by the narrator or ultimately by God. It is never okay. And Ruth was living in a particularly violent time in terms of sexual assault. 
So at the end of the book of Judges, we have a horrific story of gruesome sexual violence, a woman raped all night long, and the man who is responsible for it cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her body parts all over. It's a horrible story we don't talk about. And then, to make matters worse, the last story in the book is mass rape. A bunch of women are going to go to worship God, and their associated men um, say, well, these guys need husbands, so just rape a bunch of women and then marry them and everything will be okay. It's a horrible story. And the narrator winds up with this observation. Everybody did what was evil in their own eyes. The sexual assault is part of what happens when everybody is doing what they want. When evil has reached its nadir, its lowest point. This is the era in which Ruth lived. It's a dangerous thing for her to go out into the field. But desperate times apparently call for desperate measures, and Ruth carries out Naomi's instructions to glean, to gather wheat and gather barley in the field, because they need food. Ruth has pledged her mother-in-law her enduring care, and now she's risking her own safety. She lets love be her motivator and not fear. And I think this is another important takeaway from this story. To love my neighbor as myself in the small and the large decisions of life means I am motivated by that love and not by fear. And fear, we know, is the easiest motivator, right? Fear-mongering is what happens all the time. Um, In the political arena, in some pulpits, all sorts of places. Because it's easy to motivate people with fear. But we're the people who are called to do one thing, love. We're supposed to love God deeply and fully with our whole beings, and we're supposed to love other people. We have to choose love rather than fear. If Ruth had allowed apprehension to rule her actions, and I'm not saying she wasn't afraid. I think she was very afraid because she was a sensible person who knew she could be harmed. But she doesn't choose to act out of the apprehension. If she had, we wouldn't have this story of God's restoration being worked out in these people's lives. If she had been ruled by fear, she wouldn't have gone to Israel with Naomi in the first place. She wouldn't have gleaned in this field, in a stranger's field, under the gaze of potential attackers. And later she wouldn't have gone to see Boaz in the middle of the night. Fear closes us down and keeps us from this one thing that we're supposed to do, which is love. As many of you likely know, Ruth winds up in the field of Boaz, who's a relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. And it's interesting, Boaz has already heard about her remarkable sacrifice. He already admires her, that she has been willing to leave her homeland and travel with her mother-in-law. So he gives her protection, and he gives her enough food that she has some left over to bring home to Naomi, in addition to what she's gleaned. When Naomi hears it, she hatches a plan to secure their future. And I think it's interesting that Ruth's presence and Ruth's faithfulness sort of jolts Naomi out of her listlessness. She had given up, and everything is bad. But Ruth's presence and her love prompts the listless Naomi to swing into action. Naomi comes back from the brink of hopelessness because she has to devise a plan for Ruth to carry out. 
as one commentator observes, the text tells us that what keeps people alive is not passively waiting to be loved, but having tasks to perform that require your own love. So another aspect of moving out of that darkest place is to choose to do something loving for the other. Ruth's act of love engenders Naomi's active hope for the future. Naomi's plan. Ruth should essentially propose to Boaz in another potentially dangerous and at the very least unsavory situation, going to him in the middle of the night and hiding, to see if he'll marry her and raise up children to her deceased father-in-law's name. It's a strange request at one level. And interestingly, we have no idea what Ruth thought. We don't know. Did she, have, did she like somebody else? Did she want to marry a younger man, somebody like her age? Or did she miss Malon, her deceased husband, and want to marry somebody to raise up people to Elimelech's name? Or did she just want to ensure that Naomi would never go hungry again ever in her life? We don't know. But in our romance-saturated society, we might find it difficult to think about her choosing this course of action, choosing to propose marriage to someone for something other than love or sexual attraction. All we know is that she trusted Naomi enough to carry out this plan. And we know she's courageous enough and chooses love. So she goes to Boaz in the night. What I love about this part of the story is Boaz's response. Boaz is impressed with her. Not, oh, she chose me, but she's so loyal to Naomi and to Elimelech's name that she is taking this course of action. She's a woman of noble character. She hasn't chased after the young men. She's chosen me. And he seems so tickled, so honored that she has chosen this course of action. It's like he's an older man who's saying, she's going to bring joy into my household again. That's what it feels like as you read it. So Ruth's faithfulness has now blessed Naomi. It's about to bless Boaz. And ultimately, Ruth will bless Elimelech's name. Like ripples, our kind words and our kind actions and our embodied love spill out all directions from us. But there's a glitch. The law requires that the closest kinsmen have the first dibs on the land of this deceased man and on his uh, daughter-in-law. So Boaz has to go and check and see whether this closest kinsman wants to fulfill his duty or not. And the next of kin doesn't want to mess up his inheritance by marrying someone like Ruth. Maybe he didn't want to marry an outsider. We don't really know all his motives either. But he doesn't want to have to share with Elimelech's descendants. He'll risk nothing for his dead relative, though this foreign woman has risked everything. As in many other places in scripture, this is a picture of the faith of the unlikely contrasted with the lack of faithfulness of someone who should have known better. An immigrant woman who didn't even grow up with these laws or with this God compared with a presumably faithful Israelite man. Finally, after learning that the closest kinsman doesn't want to fulfill his role, Boaz and Ruth are free to, to marry, which they do. And as you know, a baby follow, follows, and the women of the town say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you on this day without next of kin, 
and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of your life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. It's extravagant praise in a society like ancient Israel that valued sons so highly. This offspring will cheer Naomi's heart because he is the son of beloved Ruth, the one who loves extravagantly. So a few observations about this story. The people who are favored by God may have thought they were completely self-sufficient and needed no help, but there they are, Naomi and Elimelech, traveling to Moab just to get food. Naomi's fortunes then are overturned, turned around by an outsider. The loving kindness, the same word used of Naomi that's used of God. The loving kindness of the Lord. The loving kindness of Naomi, of Ruth to Naomi. All of us may have seen blessings from God, but we're not completely whole, healed, or independent. We have to have the humility of Naomi to accept help from unexpected places. Second observation, many cultures in the world have valued male children over female, and ancient Israel is one of them, because of carrying on the male uh, line and the, the father's name. And that's why the women's words sounded right. May this male heir's name be renowned. But in God's economy, very few people have even heard of Obed, the baby. And lots of people have heard of Ruth. Sure, Obed has a famous grandson, King David, but we don't, we don't know much else about him. God has used the faithfulness of Ruth, the sacrificial love of Ruth, to restore Naomi's life, and that's what we remember. The biblical scholar Richard Bauckham suggests that Ruth's story is a call for all of us to read the rest of the text of the Bible, remembering that women along with men are involved in the drama, even if their story isn't written about even when their stories aren't highlighted. And just by way of note, I think it's really kind of amazing that there are as many stories of women um, in the Old Testament that there are. In other words, if you go to Barnes & Noble and you go to the history section, maybe some of you like history, you go to the history section, what is virtually every book in the history section of Barnes & Noble? Presidents? Generals? War? Right? We're still all about the big men of history. So we can't fault the Bible for doing that too. But what's so cool about the Old Testament is how many strong women show up. Like Miriam, like Deborah, like Huldah, like Abigail, like Ruth, like Esther. There are so many. Even in a very male-centered society, these strong women's stories are remembered. Which again, I think, shows that the Holy Spirit was involved in the writing of Scripture. I think lots of people would have been fine forgetting about Ruth's story. They might have even been embarrassed about it, this outsider who shows up the Israelite with her faith and faithfulness. Third observation. In lots of places of the Old Testament, God is the father to the fatherless, the comfort of the sorrowing. God is the friend of the widow. So in this story, God's character is expressed as the one who takes up the cause of the miserable. God cares for this widow, even this old woman who might have been forgotten by society. But here's the thing. God's care is expressed in and through 
the faithfulness of this young woman through the love that Ruth shows Naomi. And it makes me think when I was a kid, I remember hearing the stories of David, how David wins these battles. And you say, the David, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. And then other times in the, in the passage, it would say that God won the battle. And I was always confused as a child. Well, did David do it or did God do it? And the answer, obviously, is both. That God used the faithful, uh, you know, the, all the gifts he put in that person, David. He was a brilliant general. But he could have been a brilliant general for the wrong team. He was a brilliant general, and he offered his gifts to God. And God wins the battle through his faithfulness. God wins the battles through our faithfulness. God works the restoration and blessing through the loving kindness of this person, Ruth. In this story, God's character is also expressed as the one who embraces the outsider, who protects the vulnerable, who welcomes those who were once far off, even a young woman from an enemy group. I think it's tempting for people who have known the blessing of God to start thinking very narrowly. God wants to bless us. And God wants to bless people like us, people who live in the right place and in the right way. But in this story, God's blessing comes to Ruth. Naomi is not the only one who has experienced loss and then restoration. God honors Ruth. God blesses her. God welcomes Ruth through the welcome and the faithfulness of Boaz. The ripples continue. I mean, some people say, well, Boaz, he had nothing to lose anyway. You know, he's a rich guy. He could afford to marry uh, Ruth, even if it meant some of his inheritance was going to Elimelech's line. But have you ever noticed that wealthy people often go to ridiculous lengths to protect their wealth and to augment it, even in the face of those struggling to have enough to eat? Boaz is a good man who's offering his gifts to God. He chooses to participate in God's unfolding drama around him. And interestingly, in this story, we also have a couple of people who choose not to join in God's drama. They choose not to be part of this cycle of blessing. First, Orpah, who takes Naomi's instructions to heart, and she goes home. She returns to her family of origin. And I don't think it's that she's bad, but she has not chosen the path that would have drawn her into God's drama of restoration, of moving from emptiness to fullness. And the other one, of course, is the next of kin. As noted above, he didn't want to complicate his inheritance lines. He doesn't want to marry this outsider, and he doesn't want to put himself in the place, ultimately, of being used by God. He's the freedom to choose not to join God's drama of redemption redemption like we all do. We can decide not to share. We can decide not to welcome the outsider, not to join God's story of restoration. We can, in fact, be as stingy as we want. But we should never, ever make the mistake of thinking that that's what pleases God. Nor should we ever assume that God is narrow and stingy like us. There's a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. We don't have a tribal God after all who cares only about us and people like us. I remember when the Iraq war was just starting. I was teaching at Houghton at the time, and the student came to me. She was just 
flabbergasted that all of a sudden, all these cars in Houghton had bumper sticker that said, God bless America. She was like, that's just horrible theology, right? God bless America? I mean, on the one hand, sure, we can pray for blessing. But not if the unspoken additional piece to it is, and, and stomp on our enemies. And she said, you know what I want to do? I just want to prank all these cars. I just want to get the word Afghanistan and slap it on every bumper. God bless Afghanistan. To remind people that actually we don't serve a tribal God. He's not the God of America. And we don't have a monopoly on God. God, like Solomon observed, as he dedicated the temple, God is the God over all there is. So, God says, I rescued you out of Egypt, and therefore you should be generous. He says it over and over again in the Old Testament. You should remember that you were humiliated, you were enslaved, you were a bunch of sinners, you were wandering nomads until you became immigrants in the promised land. And for all those reasons, you should welcome Ruth. You should share with Ruth and with every foreigner who comes your way. And the last observation I want to make is that this is a story about people who in their mundane acts of faithfulness participated in something much grander than they could possibly imagine. Israel didn't even have a king yet. So the idea that a man after God's own heart like David would be the great grandson of um, Ruth, it, it doesn't even make sense to them, right? She, in her faithfulness, cannot even imagine how that faithfulness will ripple out through the generations even. But the original readers of this text know. The original readers would know that ultimately God is going to bless the nation with a king, the stature of David, who is a descendant of Ruth. Great news. And then the long-term surprise, when we read this text, we know her faithfulness Results in King David, but ultimately in the arrival of the Messiah, David's son, Jesus. So, at the end of the day, this story, we see a picture of a woman in despair who thinks her life is at the end. And who wants to walk through her despair alone. But she lets Ruth in. So if you're there, if you're despairing right now, Remember to honestly talk to God about it. That's the best thing to do. And even if you don't want to burden anyone, allowing people to walk with you is what the body of Christ is for. Allow people who love you to walk with you. Allow your love for them to draw you back into hope. Obviously, in the story, we also have a gutsy young woman who, in the face of her own loss, demonstrated what it means to love her neighbor as herself. Love with bold actions. Small actions and big actions. Leaving her mother and father on the one hand, going and gathering up some barley on the other hand. I think of Mother Teresa's words, a lot of times we're not actually asked to do big things. We're asked to do small things with great love. So let's decide to live our lives motivated by love and not by fear. Even if we feel fear, which is normal, 
We can choose not to live our lives from that place. Let's remember this young woman who goes alone to glean in the face of potential assault. Let's let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and tune out the fear-mongering, the doomsayers of the media. And who knows what fruits God will bring from our faithfulness. Amen.